0: Hey everybody, Angry Dad Gamer coming at you. It is a dark and stormy afternoon today. I am getting a late start to the day, especially for the podcast. My guest this week is another creator, this guy Robert Schwab, rog- Robert J. Schwab. He has worked for a company you might have heard of if you've ever played a game in your entire life called Wizards of the Coast. And if that doesn't ring a bell, he actually happened to work on the fifth edition of of a little game known as Dungeons and Dragons. His current project is actually something that's really cool. It's called Shadow of the Demon Lord, and we'll get into that in the interview. But definitely check him out. It's at schwalbentertainment.com. Of course, I'll have a link in the blog post as well. But I hope you enjoy it. Robert Schwab. All right, so I'm talking to Robert Schwab with Schwab Entertainment. Thanks for joining us. It is my sincere pleasure. Uh, So I'm interested in what you do for a couple of reasons. First of all, it looks like you've got not just um, your own game, of course, your own sort of brand with uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, but it says also freelance game designer. I'm kind of curious about how did did you get into all this to begin with? Like, this is your full time thing, right? Yeah, and it's been my
1: full-time gig for about 16 years. I've been doing it uh, professionally for 18. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's one of those things you don't ever plan on becoming and you just happen to stumble into. Um, I got started uh, after – it goes back a little further than this. I've, I've been a gamer my whole life, uh, just about, since sixth grade uh, when I was playing D&D in my uh, in the playground at my elementary school um, – but I, I, when I graduated high school, I had planned on going to college, become, a, I guess, a psychologist or a professional drug addict. Uh, but uh, those things didn't work, and I ch- chased down this lucrative career as a McDonald's manager. And uh, I did that for a couple years, got married, uh, then uh, went back to school and got a degree in English and philosophy, and then Came out uh, and immediately went back into retail because what do you do with an English and philosophy degree? <laughs> and uh, so I was selling carpeting and hardwood floors, ceramic tiles, and all that stuff. And then um, uh, uh, Mongoose Publishing had an open call, and I was uh, I was a freak about reading news and gossip about D and D and related games on EN World at the time. Uh, so I found out about this. I found out about this uh, open call, and I answered it with a couple pitches. And the first book I pitched was uh, *The Quintessential Witch*, which was an interesting book for me to write. But um, and I have no idea how it did or if it's any good or not because I don't go back and read what I've written. Um, but that led to that opened a couple doors for me. I uh, got started working with Green Ronin Publishing. Uh, they make *Mutants and Masterminds*. They're doing a role-playing game based on *The Expanse*. They did *Dragon Age*, the role-playing game. They published a song about some fire, and role playing, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I eventually became a line developer for them, and then uh, landed jobs working within my. Then, sorry. Then I also started working on Warhammer Fantasy role play for them, taking over as their line developer, and then that led to uh, freelance work with Wizards of the Coast. I worked for Wizards of the Coast as a contractor for a number of years, helped to bring about the current edition that everyone's raving about, fifth edition D anD D, and then uh, now I'm here.
0: Wow. That is uh, – first of all, I think it gives a lot of English majors hope. Yeah. <laughs> I hope don't, it does. Don't, don't. Know.
1: Uh, you know, Being an English major is good. I mean it makes you uh, – I don't know. I thought it was – at the time, I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't tell my philosophy professors, but I think I enjoyed some aspects of my English major more. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a,
0: it's a tricky business. Oh, absolutely. And it it seems, I mean, I don't know, from your perspective, you've got almost 20 years now of really being in the game, so to speak. Um, I mean, is this a tabletop renaissance that we're seeing right now?
1: Uh, For certain. Um, Although I'm not sure that, I don't want to sell this too hard, but tabletop role-playing games are probably more popular than they've ever been.
0: Yeah. That's Uh, That's what I feel like. I mean, I feel like more people, maybe it's because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, like my generation, and then there was a generation before that that grew up with the, the more basic, you know, the Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers Giants, but then my generation is now, we've got the money and we've got kids that we can torture with all these cool games, and then they get into it, and they're starting say, is, is that what's going on? Is it like an intergenerational thing?
1: I think it is. Uh, I think that, as you said, that it's our gener- you know, generation Xers, we we probably we were the ones who grew up playing D&D first. And, uh, and because I think it was, in some respects, something that you weren't really proud about unless you were very, very fortunate. Uh, I got picked on for my love of D&D and I was called a Satanist and all sorts of other things. Even my family was, was uh, very against it. Um, but you know, now that it's, I think it's just this kind of hidden treasure because we know, we didn't really talk about it too much. It was around, but now that we're in positions of creative power, I think that we are seeing D and D entering the mainstream through film, television, comics, books. I mean, you know, like Ready Player One. Ernest Klein has a whole section in in that book where he goes to the Tomb of Horrors, and making these kinds of things normalizing this hobby has made it appealing to people who are obviously the next of the millennials and the next generation afterwards, and also with the rise of uh, of, of streaming. Man, you just—I think there are a lot of gamers out there who buy the books and who are probably either and have maybe learned how to learn to play or became interested in playing just by watching live plays on YouTube and elsewhere. It's just maddening,
0: which I think is really really cool because I I did started doing Twitch a couple of years ago with video games, and you know that's just a completely different culture. Uh, because you've got to play it, whatever's new, you've got to play it immediately, you've got to play it for, like, 10 hours a day, um, whereas the tabletop folks seem to be a little bit more laid back, a little bit more like, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, fire something up here, and, like you said, the the creatives, the Gen Xers who are in creative positions, so I, the best example I can give is Dan Harmon, you know, right. who, who has that show, and it's like, they're playing D&D, and it's just, it blows my mind that this is, like, kind of mainstream now.
1: Yeah, for sure, I mean, it's, uh, you know John Rogers, who created Leverage, and uh, uh, also librarians. He's a big he's a big uh, role playing uh, guy. Uh, he's also you can also see some of the elements of that show up in his work. I mean, for example, Leverage, while never explicitly calls out D anD D, every character in that's part of a D anD D party. Yeah, I mean from the Paladin to the Thief and everybody in between. It's it's pretty pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about your game, uh, Shadow the Demon Lord. What, what's the, the overall summary here? Because I was looking at it. It seems like pretty expansive.
1: Well, it, the game itself is really, really simple. Uh, and that was one of the things that uh, drove the design for, for this particular product. Uh, now, since, I've re- since we released uh, the game, thanks to Kickstarter in 2015, uh, I've released, like, I think I've got 169 titles either out or on the way. And I think that's only four or five have not yet been released. Wow. But they're they're in production to the point where they're out of my hands. Um, yeah, so the idea was was that I worked on uh, I was as I, said, I mentioned earlier I was part of the fifth edition design team and I had an incredible experience uh, working on my favorite role playing game of all time Dungeons and Dragons. And but by the time uh, the design phase of that project was winding down, my place with the company was pretty much at an end, largely because the the way that Wizards releases products now, uh, compared to what they how they release them in fourth and third, um, was much more sparse. So you instead of seeing two to three hardbacks a month, we we'd see we now see two to three hardbacks a year. So uh, because of that, uh, I was left to go back to the freelance trenches or start my own imprint. And so I opted to start my own imprint. And what I wanted to do with Demon Lords, I wanted to create a role playing game that I could prepare with no effort, run while a little drunk, and uh, and complete a campaign in a reasonable amount of time. And so those are my big design goals. Those and are was, lofty
0: design goals. I must say
1: they are right. I mean, if you think about like, uh, old school, role, you know, role-playing games, like, uh, 20, 2000, you you spend two, three hours making your character, uh, and even D and D and third edition, and even fourth edition, these were games that required a ton of investment in time and money. And I didn't want to kind of, I wanted to sidestep that completely, but I still wanted to make it um, something that would be recognizable to people who followed my work. Cause I think the majority of the people who know what I do know that I've had my fingers on a D 20 the entire time <laughs> with the exception of a few things anyway. So with this, one of the big, one of the big goals of this game was to compress the entire play experience down to a manageable number of play sessions. So, uh, a lot of traditional fantasy role playing games to give you 20 or more levels of gameplay. And, uh, So the idea is that you are gonna be going on these adventures and every time you complete an adventure or you achieve your goals in these other role-playing games, you're gaining enough experience points to ratchet up to the next level. So your odometer is going up. Problem is is that to get through a typical adventure, it's four to eight to sometimes 12 hours of gameplay. And when you multiply that times 20, that's a huge time investment. Uh, With Demon Lord, I decided that every adventure I'm gonna create for this game is playable in two to four hours and we're only going to have 11 levels of gameplay so zero level to 10. And so that means that if you're running really short adventures, you can finish a complete campaign take your character from Joe Bob the dung sweeper all the way up to a badass wizard in 22 hours of gameplay on the on the short end, right? And that from and building the game around that sensibility is what I think sets it apart from everybody else. It's a little bit more honest I think to say that, you know, you're going to have your group of friends, and it's going to be probably easy for you guys to get together for two, three, four, five, or six times. But after that, real life's going to interfere, and then you're going to have people missing sessions and all sorts of problems. And like uh, just sustaining the group. Uh, and in fact, we had data to back this up uh, where polling the audience and the playtesters, how long their campaigns typically last, the answer, the most common answer we received was about, 60 to 90 days, uh, if I remember correctly, which means that's not a lot of time, right? right? Three months is not, a, not enough time for you to even scratch the surface of what larger role playing games can offer. So I thought that if we just are more realistic about the approach and the amount of time that people have to invest in any one thing, may as, uh, that, would, that, would be a, that would make a big difference.
0: That's uh that's excellent. No, and and I definitely feel that pain. I mean, I've got teenage kids and you know, you go through the whole kid process and boy your time <laughs> just absolutely dwindles to nothing. Um, right. So, I'm I'm curious about this too because I think uh you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons of course, were there other specifically board games that you remember as a kid that you remember playing that you were really fond of, like something that maybe sparked your interest in all this? Um
1: yeah, I mean, I my dad was a uh... My dad was interested, is an interesting guy, and when I was growing up, uh, we didn't we didn't do a whole lot together. But every once in a while, he would he'd surprise me. Uh, so in the early days, uh, when Axis and Allies would first, uh, well, actually, we go back before that. I started probably playing chess with my dad and games like that. For, you know, from when at the time I was a little kid, uh, I played Stratego for the first time with my grandfather, uh, and then. My dad introduced me to more complex, uh, tabletop games or board games, uh, such as, uh, what was that? Conquest of the empire, which is a Roman theme game. Yeah. Yeah, Great game. And then Axis and allies. And then, uh, Avalon Hill games like wizard's quest. Um, and then, you know, we did, we did stuff like that a lot leading up to my, you know, shifting gears and focus to tabletop role-playing games and, uh, so, I mean, I had, a, I had a background in board games um, going, but it was interesting, though, that I, I got to play D&D for a little while before it became uh, forbidden. Um, I had been, when I started playing uh, role-playing games, I didn't even have D&D, and I built a game based on a module that my neighbors sold me, and, uh, and this is a, I was six, sixth grade, so however old you are when you do this. <laughs> and uh, so I was playing that game, and then I eventually got to play D&D. My dad taught, was at a book show and he talked to somebody from TSR and they just sent him home with a stack of everything that was current. So I had I got Dungeon Masters, uh, I got I got adventures and supplements and all sorts of really cool things for D and D without having any of the books yet really either. But eventually that spark that kind of ballooned into this huge hobby and my obsession with uh, playing my first couple of characters and going and going to keeping the borderlands and doing all that stuff. But the my mom had decided that Dungeons Dragons was too satanic for me to play. And she allowed me to play any other role playing game. Uh, but D and D was forbidden. So I ended up playing everything, uh, from, uh, the palladium and rifts, uh, Two traveler, Shadowrun, cyberpunk, the list goes on and on. But uh, my true love came out of this era of between D and D. And that's when I found Warhammer fantasy role play.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well now i I'm, I'm curious, uh, Because there were a couple of other TSR titles that I had that I really loved. It was hard to get people together sometimes to play. One in particular, um, Star Frontiers was a big one. Oh, heck yeah. That's a great game. And and then what about Top Secret? Did you ever play that? I did. And that's one of my all-time
1: favorite games, but I probably played it twice.
0: Right? Yeah, exactly. There were so many great options. It's like then you had which was cool but you, you look back now and it's it's sort of a, a neat like kind of quaint system i've still got my uh my box of it and all the instructions and
1: <laughs> yeah I've, I've got i've got a i've got a hidden here somewhere uh did you ever play boot hill
0: no i didn't play a friend of mine had that and kept begging me to play it i never got to play that it, Boot Hill and Gamma World, because that was for
1: me. You know, I, I was very interested in Boot Hill because the Dungeon Master's guy, the first edition one, had rules for bringing Gamma World characters and Boot Hill characters into D and D, and vice versa. Which wow. I would, say would be pretty cool to play a half orc stumbling around in the Wild West.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I've been studying a lot of blockchain stuff right now, and that's kind of one of the things that uh, people who are building games on the blockchain are touting is the fact that you will be able to transfer characters into other game worlds because there's this sort of predefined, I mean, it's, it's just like an API basically where you're like, okay, here's the parameters for this character. Here's how it plugs in. And in a way it's sort of, it's kind of a throwback to GURPS uh, for people who remember that, which is still, you know, I mean, oh my gosh, I love GURPS. I mean, never mind Steve Jackson and he does amazing stuff, but like GURPS has just blew my mind when I found out about it. I'm like, well, of course this makes sense. A universal set of rules. Why not?
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, that was kind of the, and I think, you know, the D20 engine kind of made the same sort of promise in the early days when uh, third edition came out because anybody could make worlds based on D and D and you could, and you can, of course, that meant you could have a Western or science fiction setting and you could, in theory, migrate characters from the other, but it, nobody did it as well as what GURPS did.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what advice would you give to anybody out there who has an idea for a, a tabletop game of some kind, role playing, board game, any of that stuff?
1: Um, I think the main thing is is that because Kickstarter and Indiegogo, basically, crowdfunding is such an integral part uh, to the process. Actually, um, let me take a few steps back. When I got started, uh, the the way that you got into designing tabletop games was to freelance for established publishing companies. And that typically meant you'd make anywhere between a half a cent a word to three cents a word, which is pretty terrible. Uh, you would have to write so much that you to make even come close to making a living that it really is just almost impossible to do it. Um, but see, what happened was, was that a lot of these companies after the D20 boom, uh, the bubble burst, uh, a lot of these companies uh, just stopped or they disappeared or they stopped producing at the same level as they used to. They did, they did before that. The loss of Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine meant that there were fewer places that you could go for official publications where you could show off your stuff. So what I found and what I keep hearing and keep encountering is that people who are interested in getting into tabletop design uh, are kind of at a loss as far as I'm trying to get in. And I think the best way to do it is to is to kind of engage in the DIY approach. And part of that is building building your audience – from the ground up, engage in the community of the role-playing game you like the most. Create content for that for that uh, for that game, uh, and usually drive through it. RPG now have enough partnerships now that if you like over, over the Edge, you can make stuff for that game. If you like Shadow the Demon Lord, you can make adventures for it. D and D, you can go to the DM's Guild, uh, and it goes on and on and on. Pathfinder has the Open Gaming License, so you can you can totally do that as well. So I mean, there's. These are all opportunities for you to just kind of get your name out there and learn about the whole process of designing content and designing worlds and and stories for the games you love most. Once you kind of get to the point when you've you've proved yourself and you've got the design chops, you could turn to that audience and and to help you produce the role-playing game or board game that you want to make. And that's where Kickstarter and Indiegogo come in. Although I think Kickstarter is probably I'm not going to endorse either one. I've only used Kickstarter. Uh, and I've heard that you get better success out of that one over the other. But your mileage may vary. <laughs> so I, I, I would really just – I would honestly suggest uh, I think – but at this point if I was starting out, I would get in one of the grassroots communities that supports a game that, that you really like and, and build your following that way. I think that's how I would do it.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I interviewed someone recently who just yesterday had a tabletop event. And it, and of course, this is something that's also I've seen in the past few days. There's a lot of comic stores out there that are doing this, but a lot of them do like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon or whatever. But what's cool is seeing tabletop events where people either bring their games or the group that's organizing brings a bunch And what I've seen is that people who are designing games will host these so that they have a table where they're playtesting something um, and that's building an audience as well. But yeah, what I think what's really cool about all this is that it's so very grassroots and it's like, it's, it's kind of a meritocracy where it's like you put, you get out what you put in.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, there are all sorts of incredible things that are happening on the OSR crowd, uh, the OSR scene and a lot of the smaller publishers who are just kind of, Bravely taking steps and directions that I think a lot of the the older and established game design generation are unwilling to make. Uh, you know, you're talking about going into game stores and hosting those events. In a year before I launched the Demon Lord Kickstarter, I burned through all my Marriott points to take the game on the road. And I went to every game store I could in the southeast. I went to Seattle and I went to a couple shows. And uh, just got, out, got the game in front of as many eyes as possible. And it's you know, kind of like being a door-to-door you know, Bible salesman. Uh, but it, uh, it was great to be able to get instant feedback on the thing that I was trying to make.
0: I'm, I'm going to think of you from now on as a door-to-door Demon Lord salesman. That's pretty much it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Robert, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for episode three of the Angry Dad Gamer podcast, both sides of the table. In the next episode, we'll talk to another avid player of board games. In fact, he's got something a little bit special. He's also a creator as well, which we find that there's a lot of bleed over. But he hosts a number of board game playing meetups as well. So we'll talk about a few of all those things in the next episode. both sides of the table thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe and tell your friends